All right, well, good morning again. Good to see everybody. God bless you. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. So let me just, do we haven't met in a few weeks because of holiday and guest speaker. So uh, most of you know that we have started a new study through the book of Philippians. And uh, instead of going verse by verse through Philippians, which is the standard way we study the Bible here at Calvary, and I've already done that verse by verse through Philippians in the past, which you can go online and check it out. Um, I prayed about doing something different, and I feel like the Lord laid on my heart that we should study the book of Philippians, but topically, topically. Now, every theme, excuse me, every book of the New Testament has a theme. And uh, I thought it might be beneficial to build a series of messages around the main theme of the book of Philippians, which is joy. As we have already said, what makes that theme so powerful is that Paul wrote this letter while he was uh, a prisoner in Rome. And you know, guys, it's easy to be joyful when you're in the midst of blessing. But when you find yourself joyful in the midst of adversity and suffering, you know you're growing in Christ. That's something else altogether. So I've taken the main theme of Philippians, which is joy, and I've isolated every place in the epistle the word joy, rejoice, rejoicing, rejoiced appears. Uh, you know, and I studied all those verses, uh, looking at the context of those passages to determine, well, what was the context in which Paul was speaking about joy? Um, what did he? What was he saying about it? Those words appear there, but what was the thought that caused him to speak about joy? And um, I organized those different thoughts, uh, different passages, then uh, under a specific heading. These headings will become the main points I want to build this series around. The first one we've already looked at is joy in fellowship. We talked about what it means to be in fellowship with God's people, uh, what the word means, examples from scripture, just things that we could look at to better understand the concept of joy in the Christian life, joy in fellowship, I should say. And we studied that from chapters 1, verses 3 to 6. This morning, we want to look at the second one in our outline, which uh, I've entitled Joy in Proclaiming the Gospel. Joy in sharing your faith. Joy in evangelism. And that comes out of chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. So let's read it. Where Paul said, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren uh, in the Lord... Uh, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ uh, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add afflictions to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, or in other words, the gospel is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. 
Now, as we've already stated, Paul wrote this epistle from prison in Rome where he was waiting to stand uh, before Caesar to defend, to defend himself against the false accusations that had been leveled against him by the Jewish leadership there in Israel. Uh, you would think that these circumstances would have gotten Paul down, but you'd be wrong. You see, more than anything else, Paul desired as a missionary to preach the gospel in Rome. We read about that in Acts 19.21 and Romans 1.15. Why did Paul want to preach the gospel so desperately in Rome? Well, you have to understand, when Rome became the dominant world empire, one of the things it did was it built roads from all the major areas of the empire that led right into the city of Rome. They did that because they wanted Rome to become the center of all commerce in their empire. Not only that, another benefit was that these roads led to every area of the empire which allowed the military, Roman soldiers, to be dispersed quickly to quell any uprisings throughout the empire. But Paul thought about this and said, look, if all roads, excuse me, if all roads lead to Rome, it also means all roads lead from Rome. And this would be the best way to get the gospel out to the entire Roman Empire if Rome could become the Christian headquarters of the empire. I mean, you know, Antioch at this point in Syria was the Gentile capital of the church, Jerusalem the Jewish Christian capital, but Paul envisioned taking both Jew and Gentile and making them one in Christ practically by turning Rome into the hub of the Christian faith. And so that's why he was all gung-ho. Now, he wanted to go to Rome as a preacher. Didn't quite work out that way. He went to Rome as a prisoner. Look, God will get you from point A to point B. He won't always guarantee you're going to go first class. He'll get you there. So Paul finally makes it to Rome. But not as a conquering hero of Christianity but as a humiliated prisoner of the Roman government, who, by the way, was absolutely innocent of any crimes. And as such, he could have written this letter to the Philippian Christians feeling, you know, sorry for himself. This is the thanks I get for serving God. Faithful, and now I'm a prisoner, falsely accused. Paul didn't feel that way. That was not his mindset. He never complained about his circumstances. Look, when your whole life is consumed with a passion to see people saved, as Paul's was, he saw every circumstance as an opportunity to preach the gospel, even as he says here in verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, the record of these things, the things that have happened to me, the record of these things you can read about in Acts 21, verse 17 through Acts 28, verse 31. But it all began with Paul's illegal arrest in the temple in Jerusalem. Author and uh, pastor Warren Worsby fills in the backstory. He suddenly, quote, The Jews thought he, Paul, had desecrated their temple by bringing in Gentiles. He had not, but they assumed he did. And the Romans thought he was an Egyptian renegade who was on their most wanted list. Paul, be, uh, Paul be, 
became the focal point of both political and religious plotting and remained a prisoner in Caesarea for two years. When he finally appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen, when he finally appealed his case to Caesar, he was sent to Rome. En route, the ship was wrecked. You remember how it hit an incredible, incredibly violent nor'easter called Eurachlodon, right? A hurricane. And uh, the account of that storm in Paul's courage and faith is one of the most dramatic in the Bible. You can read Acts 27 to get the full story. After three months of waiting on the island of Malta, where the ship had been shipwrecked, Paul finally embarked for Rome and the trial he had requested before Caesar. Now, guys, to many, all of this would have looked like a failure. Some people teach that unless you always ride high and go first class, something is wrong with your ministry. And I'm sure there's many Christians who look at this story and said, well, Paul was out of fellowship. Paul was not walking in the Spirit, because if he was, he would have gone into Rome more than a conqueror instead of as a lowly, humiliated prisoner. They don't know God. People that say things like that have no idea how God works. God had not abandoned Paul by any means. Because when your whole life is laser-focused on sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul's was, well, he praised God for his circumstances. He praised God for his circumstances. Listen, Paul didn't find joy in ideal circumstances. He found joy in whatever circumstance allowed him to preach the gospel. And if the circumstance, no matter how bad it was from a physical human standpoint, allowed him to reach people with the gospel, it was an ideal circumstance. That's how Paul felt. Paul lived what he preached. He lived out Colossians 3, 2. Don't set your mind on things on the earth. Set your mind on things above. For this life, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Therefore, keep your eyes on what is not seen as opposed to what is seen. Because what is seen is temporary. What is not seen, that's eternal. Keep your eyes on heaven. Keep your eyes on the prize. When we talk about joy in proclaiming the gospel, everybody in this room who has ever shared the gospel knows exactly what I'm talking about. We all know the joy we feel when God opens the door for us to share the gospel with somebody and they get saved, obviously, but the joy we, we even feel when we just get a chance to witness to them, even if they don't pray to receive the Lord. Who has not walked away from a situation like that with a bounce in your stuff? God, use me today. Why, it just feels so awesome inside that I was able to share the, to share the gospel. And I, and I understand a big part of the joy we experience when God opens the door for us to share the gospel with someone, and they do get saved, is knowing that we have been used by God to save a soul from eternal destruction in hell. That's a good day. That's a very good day. When we are used by God to do something like that. But let me just tell you this. The joy of sharing the gospel with others will only become a reality. I'm talking about real joy. I'm talking about the kind of joy where it's like, this is what I live for. I live to share the gospel. I can't think of anything else that brings more joy into my life. Anything else I would rather do than share the gospel with people. The only way for you to have that kind of joy in your life 
is you have to begin to see the lost through Jesus' eyes. Turn to Matthew 9. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's obvious. That's nothing, no big revelation. Well, no, it shouldn't be. But you'd be surprised how many Christians don't see the lost through Jesus' eyes. Now, in Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38, we read, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Can I first of all say this? Say this. The thing that made Jesus so different from the other religious leaders in Israel, apart from the fact he's God, okay, but I would say on a human level, what made him so different from them, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, and so on, was his compassion for people. And it was his compassion, listen, rooted in the love of God, his compassion for people that made him so appealing and caused people to be drawn to him. You know, guys, it's interesting how differently Jesus saw people in contrast to how others saw them and even see them today. You know, the scribes and Pharisees saw sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. They saw irredeemable rabble. The rabbis even taught Gentiles couldn't even get saved. They were irredeemable. God only, and this is their saying, God only made Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. Talk about a basket of deplorables. That's how they felt. They only saw overt, dirty, filthy, degenerate sinners. But Jesus saw people made in the image of God. In other words, Jesus saw not so much dirty sinners but lost souls that didn't know where to go for help because their spiritual leaders, again, scribes and Pharisees and chief priests and so on, didn't want anything to do with them. So they had nobody to shepherd them. They had no shepherd because their spiritual leaders hated them, wouldn't give them the time of day. The Pharisees were the ones who walked down the streets of Jerusalem with their robes pulled tight to their bodies Lest God forbid the wind should take their robe and it flap up against a sinner and they be defiled. You're not going to reach too many people if that's your attitude towards the lost. But listen, even Jesus' disciples, and guys, this would include disciples of Christ today. But even Jesus' disciples back then didn't see people through the eyes of Jesus. Not initially. They did eventually. But not initially. One author said, Jesus saw people. The disciples saw people. Jesus saw helpless, herding sheep without a shepherd. The disciples saw only people. Jesus saw a harvest of souls for the kingdom of heaven. The disciples just saw lots of people who were a drain on their time and energy. When you're in ministry and people aggravate you, you shouldn't be in ministry. I mean, think about that, right? 
I heard somebody say in joking one time, I love the ministry, I just hate the people. <laughs> okay. Uh, you got a problem. Jesus loved people. Um, but the difference between how Jesus looked at people and how others, especially unbelievers, looked at them was Jesus saw them through the eyes of the Spirit, through the eyes of God, whereas others saw people through the eyes of flesh. And I think that was the biggest reason why Jesus was able to have such compassion on people or compassion for people. He was able to look beyond the outward into their hearts. Now, he, he's God. He can look at the heart. But we can also, if we look at what comes out, Jesus, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's going on in the heart will kind of work its way out in people's lives. We have to be a little more perceptive. Jesus could look at somebody and know their heart right away. But we can still dig deeper if we take the time to notice people and what they're going through and how they're acting. You know, even in laughter, the heart may grieve, the Bible says, and the end of joy may be sorrow. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. You've heard of different comedians over the years that made others laugh and wind up committing suicide. They were the embodiment of that idea. Fight the urge to judge somebody just based on the outward. Often it's hiding a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. They're lashing out. They're being mean, vindictive. Maybe they're the most hurting in the crowd. Maybe they need the most compassion from us. But again, Matthew 9:36, Jesus said, "When, uh, but when he, Jesus, saw the multitudes." He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. The Greek word for weary means distressed, dejected, troubled, inside, in their hearts. Scattered means cast down, thrown away. There's a lot of throw people that have been thrown away by society, even by their families. Their lives have been lived in such a way that nobody wants to associate with them anymore seems the only one at that point who really loves them is God. And God is all about reaching down to the scrap pile of humanity and taking people not just to remold them, but to totally recreate them. Nobody is beyond the grace of God, beyond the touch of God. But guys, it was Jesus' compassion for people that motivated his ministry to them. Even when he was hurting, in his humanity, there were times he was really hurting. And possibly in his humanness, he didn't feel like at that moment, really, like he wanted to minister to others when he needed a little ministry himself. But he still did it. Turn to Matthew 14. The background of Matthew 14 was that John, Jesus' first cousin, John the Baptist, had been tossed into prison. And he had been tossed into prison because he confronted Herod and his new wife, Herodias. Herodias had been married to Herod's brother, Philip. But when Herod went to visit his brother, Philip, he, she caught his eye. He wooed her away from Philip. She divorced Philip and married Herod. Well, when they came back to Judea, 
uh, John the Baptist confronted him. It is not lawful for you to take her as your wife. You know that, Herod. Herod was uh, a relative of the Jewish people. He was uh, a descendant of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. And so he told it to him straight. In Herodias, Herod was afraid to do anything because the people loved John. But Herodias kept it in her heart. And finally, when Herod one day, but, but eventually John was imprisoned. And then one day Herod was throwing a kind of a, a feast for some heads of state. And uh, during this time, Herodias' daughter was probably just in her late teens, early 20s. She danced a very sensual dance. From what I understand, it's the dance of the seven veils, kind of like a striptease. Herod was so drunk that when she did this, he was just so enamored with her. He made a rash vow and said, Lo, you're so wonderful. Look, ask me whatever you want. I'll give anything you ask up to half my kingdom. Goes to her, Mom, Mom, what do you want me to ask for? Ask him to give you the head of John the Baptist on a platter this day. So she went back and told Herod he was grieved because he did really like John. But because of the oath, he sent the guards and they went and beheaded John in prison, brought his head back on a platter. That's where we pick it up. Verse 10. So John was beheaded in the prison and his head brought on a tray and given to the girl who took it to her mother. Later, John's disciples came for his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. He's, he's grieving. He loved John. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. If that had been me, I would have said, Can I have a little privacy, please? You folks are so demanding. I need a little downtime. You know, that would have been how I would have handled it, probably. Not Jesus. He put his feelings aside, his hearts, and he ministered to hurting people. Because that's who he was. And Jesus was always trying to teach his disciples to see people through the eyes of the Spirit, through the eyes of God. Turn to John 4. Let me read you verse 35 and I'll explain what's going on. John 4, verse 35, Jesus said, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. What is he actually saying here? The context is he had talked to a woman by the well of Sychar, a Samaritan. And you can read about the exchange they had. And the outcome was that she, Jesus led her to himself. And then she quickly ran into town to tell everybody she had found the Messiah. While she was gone, Jesus' disciples walked up. Right before she left the maze, he was speaking with a Samaritan because they were defiled. They couldn't be saved. Jesus knew that was not true. Nobody's beyond the grace of God, right? So as he, be, excuse me, as he begins to talk to his disciples, after a while, 
here come the men of Samaria to see who this is that this woman says is the Jewish Messiah. And they're coming down the road, walking up the hill with the green grain of the barley harvest four months away yet, all around them. And as they come walking up the hill wearing white robes, Jesus said, look, you say four months until the harvest, but I say to you, look, lift up your eyes. As the men now are, their white robes are seen above the green stalks of the harvest. I say to you, the fields are already white under harvest. What is he saying to them? He's saying, guys, don't be so myopic. Don't be so nearsighted that all you see is what affects you. And don't get your eyes on the, the, the physical needs. Grain, food, that's important. But in Matthew 6.33, he said, he said um, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else you need to live in the physical, God will take care of. Don't live at the level of the physical. Live at the level of the spirit. And the level of the spirit is to see people saved and brought into the kingdom. I think that applies to all of us because we can all get very nearsighted. I can become very selfish at times and only see what affects me. That's why it's good to have a ministry like Destiny Rescue come out a week or so ago to show videos of little girls kidnapped, being trafficked, forced to have sex with men 40 times a day. So bad they have to have genital um, reconstructive surgery when they rescue them out of this horrible condition. When I saw that, I lifted up my eyes, even though we have been supporting them for a long time. But it's good to be put in remembrance of what... I have no idea what life is like that, to live that way. Because I get myself all absorbed in what affects me. I need to look up, lift up my eyes and look at an evil world and people being abused, hurting people that I can pray for, I can give money to help deliver them, and we do. After that representative came out from Destiny Rescue, as he said that Sunday, it takes about $1,500 to deliver one child out of this sex slave industry. That's to rescue them, to house them, to feed them, to school them, to make them productive citizens as they grow up. As a church, we committed to spending $1,500 a month so we can see 12 kids rescued a year. It might be a small drop in the bucket, but it's something. It's something. You know, when Jesus said the harvest is truly plentiful, that causes many Christians to respond, oh, but there are so many who are lost. How can I make a difference? Look, first of all, let me say this. Don't try to save the world. Just start with those closest to you. How about you start with your families, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, things like that. Listen, before God will send you around the world preaching the gospel, he'll probably send you across the street. 
But guys, I saw this story, right? So many lost people, how can I make a difference? I saw this story that goes along with what we've been talking about, so I thought I'd share it with you. It goes like this. A businessman and his wife were busy to the point of exhaustion. They were committed to each other, their family, their church, their work, and to their friends. Needing a break, they escaped for a few days of relaxation at an oceanfront hotel. One night, a violent storm lashed the beach and sent massive breakers thundering against the shore. The man lay in his bed, listening and thinking about his own stormy life of never-ending demands and pressures. The wind finally died down, and shortly before daybreak, the man slipped out of bed and took a walk along the beach to see what damage had been done. As he strolled, he saw that the beach was covered with starfish, thousands of them, that had been thrown ashore and helplessly stranded by the great waves. Once the morning sun burned through the clouds, the starfish would dry out and die. Suddenly, the man saw an interesting sight. A young boy, who had also noticed the plight of the starfish, was picking them up one at a time. A young boy, who had also noticed, uh, was picking them up one at a time and flinging them back into the ocean. Why are you doing that? The man asked the lad as he got close enough to be heard. Can't you see that one person will never make a difference? You'll never be able to get all those starfish back into the water. There are just too many. Yes, that's true, the boy sighed, as he bent over and picked up another and tossed it back into the water. Then as he watched it sink, he looked at the man and smiled and said, but it sure made a difference to that one, end quote. You know, Jesus said, and I'll just quote Mark. He said this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person, Right? You read that and you go, well, that's for missions organizations. That's for missionaries. In fact, I think every mission organization I've ever seen has used that verse in their literature somewhere. Go into all the world. But here's how the Greek reads. As you are going into all the world, preach the gospel. That's for all of us. As you're going into the world to school, to work, to the store, Wherever else you're going, preach the gospel. Pastor, are you kidding me? If I preach the gospel, everybody I came across, I never get anywhere. The words of Augustine, I think, are relevant here. He said, everywhere you go, preach the gospel. If you have to, use words. Your life should be the light. Right? Guys, this is the greatest work any person can ever be involved in the saving of an eternal soul but passion for it will never happen in your life until you as a christian learn to see everything in the world in terms of you ready red tags and green tags what are you talking about i heard a pastor years ago say this and i've never forgotten it imagine everything in the world being tagged by either red tags or blue t or green tags. He said the red tags represent that which is temporal. It's not going to last, which means your car, your boat, your motorcycle, your house, 
your clothes, everything. Your pets, sorry. <laughs> everything that's going to perish in this life, everything that's not eternal, see it with a red tag. And everything that is eternal, see it with a green tag. And when I say everything, I mean every person. Because the only ones that are eternal are human beings. Every human being is going to spend eternity in one of two places. Either in heaven or in hell. Here's the problem. Satan gets us so preoccupied with the red tag stuff. Because he's got us thinking that's the most important thing in life that we neglect what's really important. All people who are going to live forever somewhere. And there are people that are more concerned about the welfare of their animals, which you should be concerned about that. A righteous person treats their animals kindly. I'm not putting that down. But if you have more concern for your pet than for a lost soul, that's a problem. You have people that are more concerned about the welfare of the planet than they are the people on the planet. Look, I believe that, that many churches in these last days have drifted off course. And I think if we want to stay on course as Christians and as a church, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And what did Jesus do when he was on the earth? What was he most concerned about? What was the focus of his life and ministry? And what did he command us as his followers uh, to do after he returned to his father? Well, you could sum up the focus of Jesus' ministry in one word. People. He loved to be with people, to interact with people, and to help people. And what was Jesus most concerned about when it came to people? We don't have to guess. He told us. Luke 19.10 I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now I know that the thought of evangelism scares a lot of Christians to death. Okay? Because in their minds they, they think of it in terms of going door to door. Right? That even causes professional salespeople to get a little nervous. That's called a cold call. That's the hardest call to make. You walk up to somebody's house, knock on the door, and try to sell them a service or a product. But I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus and his disciples actually did that. Now, they may have. I just don't see anywhere where they were knocking on doors. If I read my Bible correctly, it seems that the Holy Spirit is telling us that the greatest and most effective kind of evangelism that takes place is through the witness of a transformed life. Let me say it again. The most powerful and effective kind of evangelism is the kind where we preach the gospel through a transformed life. This is before we even say a word. Turn to Matthew 5. Starting in verse 14, Jesus said, 
to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, listen, let your good deeds, or in other words, let your life, let your life shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. It's called lifestyle evangelism. Lifestyle evangelism. Or in other words, opening the door of a person's heart by simply being a living witness. I won't have you turn to it, but you can write it down. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3. Here's what was going on. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3. In those days when a speaker, a professional orator came to town, people would make the time to go see them because it was a form of entertainment. It was like going to an opera or a play. Anybody who was really good at speaking, at phrasing things, and giving you know arguments uh, or uh, apologetics for things, that was something that people liked to do. But if they were going to take the time to go see a person like that, they wanted that person to have letters of recommendation for others who have seen them. And so when Paul was going around ministering, his critics said, where's his letters of recommendation? Where, where, where are the, the, the testimonies of people that say he was phenomenal? Paul said, look, I don't need letters of recommendation for people, from people. You are my letters, written not with ink on paper, but with the Holy Spirit's signature in the fleshly tablets of your heart. In other words, you are my living letters, my living epistles. Your lives speak louder than any handwritten letters of recommendation I could gather from people. Guys, when we live out through the power of God that new life Christ has given us, it's a powerful witness. As I have said many times, people can argue with your doctrine. They can't argue with a changed life. That's all there is to it. Lifestyle evangelism, listen to me now, must precede verbal evangelism. Otherwise, people are going to write you off as a hypocrite, right? You just talk the talk, but you're not walking the walk. I can't tell you how many times over the years people have come to me and said, you know, this person at work, they're always sharing the gospel, but then they're ripping the company off. They're knifing people in the back. They're around the water cooler telling off-color jokes. People are laughing at them. They don't want anything to do with them. Lifestyle evangelism must precede verbal evangelism if people are going to take our words seriously. When it comes to lifestyle evangelism, guys, there are three basic forms. They go hand in hand. There is transformational evangelism. In other words, when your life is transformed by the power of Christ and he has delivered you from alcohol, drugs, or some other area of bondage, and people who knew you and knew you were an alcoholic or a drug addict, and they see you now when you're clean, you're sober, you're walking around with a Bible, you're going to church, they may not drop to their knees at that moment and receive Christ, although they may, but you're going to get their attention. You're going to get their attention. 
Number two is relational evangelism. You know, Jesus said to the demoniac that he had delivered the demons out of in Gadara, guy so demon-possessed that he just lived in the tombs. And all night long, people heard him screaming and crying out and cutting himself with rocks and, uh, and uh, just no peace at all. And Jesus went over there, cast the demons out. And it says the man was sitting peaceful, calm, in his right mind. And he said, I want to go with you. I want to go with you, Jesus. Jesus said in Mark 5, 19, no, go home to your family. And you tell them what great things God has done for you. His mercy he has shown upon you. Look, guys, we call it a relational evangelism. And it doesn't just stop with your family. It extends to your friends. And it extends to maybe new friends that you try to make. Uh, we were saying first service, you know, uh, since COVID showed uh, a lot of parents what's really going on in their schools with their kids. Uh, it has caused um, parents to start going to school board meetings for the first time in their lives. You know, you go to something like that because you're fighting for your kids, but you're making contact. You're making friends. You can build on those relationships, right? And use it as an opportunity to witness. You know, I mean... Some of you are very gregarious. You're very outgoing. You know, maybe people in the neighborhood. Uh, some of the women with women, guys with guys. Get to know people, invite them over for coffee, make friends. It's a lot easier to witness to a friend than a stranger. When, when, when our kids were little, I remember uh, our daughter Angela. Her first day in school, we, had to, we were waiting outside. I think Cindy brought her that day. Sometimes I would bring her. And it was just a little thing. Got our little school outfit on, cute as can be. And you have to wait for the bell so they can go in, right? If you're standing in line with other kids and their parents, she met a girl on the first day of kindergarten that she still stays in contact with today. Cindy and her mom became good friends. I mean, look for opportunities to build relationships that you can build on by then sharing the gospel. I know some of you are thinking, oh, but you don't know my schedule. I just don't have any time. Again, think of the red tags and the green tags. The red tags, I'm not saying they're not important. They're just not all important. An eternal soul, that is all important. And then you have ministerial evangelism. You have transformational, relational, ministerial evangelism. What do I mean by this? Well, you can read the passage this week on your own, but in Acts 9, verse 36, it says, There was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in the Greek is Dorcas. I like Tabitha. <laughs> Dorcas, not so much. But there it was. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. This gave her an open door to many people's hearts in our neighborhood listen guys i have found that simple acts of kindness can go a long way in making a person's heart receptive to the gospel i'll let you fill in the blanks little acts of kindness this even works when you have people who consider you their enemy i don't consider anybody my enemy but there's a lot of unbelievers that consider me their enemy because i'm a christian i'm a pastor but here's what Paul said in Romans 12, 20. 
If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. You'll bring conviction. And who knows, you may gain a brother or sister in Christ. Jesus used this style as a springboard to verbalize the gospel many times. Helping people's physical needs and then using the opportunity to teach them about their spiritual needs, which were all important. Which brings us to the second, and I'm gonna, these are very quick, brings us to the second kind of evangelism, which is verbal evangelism. So out of lifestyle evangelism, living a life that is consistent with who Christ has made you to be, that leads to opportunities to share the gospel verbally. Verbal evangelism. And, and you know, guys, one of the, one of the, you know, a lot of young Christians... I've heard him say, well, who am I to share the gospel with you? I don't know anything. I'm brand new. I mean, I'm not a Christian college professor or anything. You don't have to be. All you need to do is share your faith. All you need to do is to share your faith um, through your testimony. Through your testimony. Again, Mark 19, Jesus said to this man um, who wanted to follow him, no, go home to your family. Tell them everything what God has done for you. Give them your testimony. We can all do that. Remember in John chapter 9, Jesus healed a blind guy? Created quite a stir. And so the Pharisees called this guy in when they heard Jesus had done this. They're trying to get the guy to back off his story. Come on, who really opened your eyes? Well, it was Jesus. No, it wasn't. He's a sinner. We know he's a sinner. He breaks the Sabbath. He, he goes against the law. Don't tell it was us it was Jesus. He is a sinner. The guy said, well, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. I don't, know, I don't have my theology nailed down on Jesus yet. All as I know is this. Once I was blind, but now I see. How do you argue with that? Right? Paul used this approach three times in the book of Acts where he just shared what God had done in his life. And guys, I'm going to abbreviate this one here. I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but if you, you know, use your testimony, but obviously use scripture to, when you witness to people. One of the easiest ways is to give them a gospel track. There are some incredible gospel tracks. You can go online and find all kinds. Uh, I listened to a, a, a guy one time who was president of one of these gospel tracks, Societies, he carries gospel tracts with him all the time. He's given them to everybody. You share the stories of people that got saved with a gospel tract. Don't underestimate gospel tracts. They can be very powerful. Something else that is powerful, if you're talking to somebody about the gospel and you want to, um, so this is pretty powerful, but you've got to memorize, you've got to write down the references. It's called the Romans Road. The Romans Road, or the gospel that comes out of the book of Romans. And um, it's, it's really powerful if you open your Bible and say, well, here's the first one I want you to read. Let them read it. Okay, well, let me hear them to you real quick. Romans 3, and then the next one, you know, let them read it for themselves. Out loud. It's pretty powerful. Here, here's my version. There are several versions. Here's the one I like. 
Romans 3.23, for everyone who everyone has sinned and has fallen short of God's glorious, or in other words, perfect standard. None of us are perfect. Romans 5.8, but God showed his, we're all sinners, Romans 5.8, but God showed his love for us, his great love for us, by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10, verse 9, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 13, for everybody, anyone, nobody's excluded, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 8, 1, once you are saved, Romans 8, 1, there is no, therefore now no condemnation, no judgment, no hell for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And then, guys, if all of that fails, or in addition to some of that, you can use the invitational approach, um, which simply means to invite them to church. How many of you guys that I know you have have invited people to church on special occasions? The Christmas tea has become one of our biggest outreaches of the year. It's wonderful. Start of the Christmas season, we have wonderful Christmas music. Cindy gives an awesome Christmas message. People are open to starting the Christmas season with something like that. They come out. Cindy tailors the message to always include the gospel. It's amazing how many women get saved. Or guys have gotten saved at men's luncheons. Or if you can get them to come to the men's retreat. Or the ladies' retreat. Now that won't work with every person, but it will work with some. Look, in closing, let me say this. We need to break out of our comfort zones. That's the problem. One pastor said this, and I quote, My single greatest concern is the growing inertia I see. Inertia born out of our luxury and materialism. Most people think what the gospel needs is more clever, skilled people, when what it needs is more people who are willing to bleed, suffer, and die in a passion to see people come to Christ, end quote. That's true. I, who could argue with that? But one of the big problems mitigating against this is we have isolated... Christians have become a subculture. A lot of Christians are no longer going into all the world. Why? Because they have these incredible churches that have about every amenity you can ever imagine. Good heavens, it's a one-stop shop. You go there on Sunday, you can live there till Saturday. You've got restaurants and coffee shops and social events and everything else. You don't have to leave the church. The problem is we are isolating ourselves from the very people that need us the most. I see a lot of churches that have lost their way, who have lost sight of their true mission where the goal is no longer to go into all the world seeking and saving those who are lost. No, the goal now has been reimagined. Now it's to go, the goal is to, to gather in the church with Christians, to enjoy fellowship with other believers, which, as we have said, there is joy in that. But not if that's the only thing you do and the only ones you have contact with. We go to church to get our batteries recharged. We don't live in church. Once you get your batteries recharged through the singing of worship music and the hearing of the word and the fellowship of the saints, then you go out fully charged, ready to go into all the world and seek 
the, the lost, right? Seeking to save those who are lost. That's not the goal anymore. The goal is, seems to be now in many churches, many Christians, come to church, enjoy the fellowship, and even seek to network. We've lost people who have gone to bigger churches because we were too small for them to network their services and products. What you'll wind up with is not a vibrant, dynamic, soul-winning church, but a sanctified social club. Let me read this and we'll close. Because it goes along, I've, some of you have heard this. I think this is profound. It's an allegory of what we're talking about. It goes like this. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were, tra were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the, um, the so they replaced the emergency cot, uh, excuse me, they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they use it now as sort of a club also. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin. Some of them had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately held, had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming into the club. A lot of churches that attempt that. You get yourself cleaned up, come on back. We don't like dirty sinners here. Oh, I get it. At the next meeting, they were split in the club's membership. Most of the members wanted to, wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the, normal, to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told, that if they wanted to save the lives of all those various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Now, the person who wrote that little story wrote it as an allegory of the church and how that the church started with a very simple mission. 
to seek and to save those who were lost. It, that was the original mission of the church as our leader Jesus Christ stated in Luke 19.10 was his mission on the earth. A mission he then passed along to his disciples in the Great Commission telling us to go into all the world to save the lost. This meant that Jesus had called his church from the very beginning to be a life-saving station, not a comfortable social club. But let me say this, and I'll close. Yes, there is great joy in sharing the gospel. Yes, there is great joy in seeing others get saved. But do you realize there's more joy to it than that? What do I mean? When you go out and share the gospel with unbelievers, even if they don't get saved, but especially if they do, Sharing the gospel with the lost, or in other words, imparting the life of God to those we evangelize, has a way of returning the life of God back to us. When you're sharing the gospel, you're sharing the life of God. As you do, there is something strange, something almost mystical that happens to you. As you're imparting life or giving the gospel, some of the life of God is coming back onto you. Jesus said in Luke 6.38, give and it shall be given back to you. As you keep sharing the gospel with the lost, you will also keep being renewed and revived in your own walk. As one famous evangelist said, and I quote, evangelize or fossilize. It's that simple. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the joy that you have given to us when we are able to share your good news with the lost. And Lord, we pray that you would open up more doors in the future for us to share the gospel with others. And that, Lord, you would use us by your grace to see many brought to Christ through our witness and testimony. And we thank you, Lord, that as we share the gospel with others in a mystical kind of way, some of that life, that energy comes back onto us and we are renewed, we are revived we are set on fire. Give us grace, Lord, to go into all the world in these last days and preach the good news to everybody we come in contact with. And if necessary, give us grace to use words, but give us grace to preach the gospel through our changed lives. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.